When you love farming, you want to talk about it all the time. Real people, real farms, grassroots. This is the Ontario AgCast. Welcome to the Ontario AgCast. The Ontario AgCast can be heard along with lots of other great agricultural podcasts and agriculture video blogs on the Farm and Rural Ag Network, farmruralag.com. My guest today is Dr. Jude Capper. Dr. Capper is a sustainability expert located in Oxford, England. Jude, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Or there, or here, or there, or wherever it is. <laughs> <laughs> now, that is presumptuous of me to call you Jude. Perhaps I should call you Dr. Capper. No, no, no. It's fine. Whatever suits you. Whatever suits Now, you have done Will Evans' show, Rock and Roll Farming. Yes. I assume that Will was very professional and charming and quite sophisticated. Oh, absolutely. Model of professionalism and, you know, and cool, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is going to be nothing like that. Okay, fabulous. Even better. <laughs> so, Jude, you are passionate about agriculture and particularly the dairy industry. Yeah. Have you been involved in farming your whole life? No, not at all. No ag background at all, but we got a horse when I was nine. And so that led into the kind of horsey agriculture thing. And um, from there, I went to a place called Harper Adams to do my uh, BSc in agriculture with animal science. So you did a BSc and then you continued your education and you eventually ended up in the US. Well, I did a PhD in ruminant nutrition and behavior, but that was actually sheep. Um, so I began with sheep and then was teaching a little bit while I wrote on my PhD and I met a guy called Dr. Dale Bauman who's a professor who was a professor at Cornell he's since retired and he was kind of the god of fatty acids which is what I did on my PhD really and so I came over to Cornell to do um, dairy science uh, postdoc work. So Cornell is the northeastern United States that's probably the closest that you've ever lived to Canada. Well I don't know because I was at Cornell but then I was in Montana for a for quite a while as well so actually wasn't that far from the border right but that's western canada nothing at all like ontario yeah absolutely yeah two completely different bits but still uh, but still not that far so moving from the uk to the united states must have been a, a fair adjustment for you what would you say is the biggest difference in farming from the uk to the u.s yeah certainly more small scale generally um particularly in dairy we do have some big farms we do have some herds of you know 1200 cows but that's about as big as we get and that's a really small proportion of total farms i mean it's less than kind of five percent of total farms so in a similar way to the us and canada we still have a large number of small farms and then a small number of big farms but the big farms just aren't as big as they are with you guys and also it's a cold, wet kind of place more. We don't have the snow that you guys get, but we equally don't get the heat in the summer. Quite good for growing grass. And what about people's attitudes about farming? Was there a big difference between consumers in the UK and the way that people here in North America view commercial agriculture? I don't know. I think it depends. I think it depends where you're based. So I was on Jersey Island um, a couple of months ago, and there the Jersey cow is everything, and farmers are a huge proportion of the total population, bearing in mind that Jersey is a very, very, very small place. Whereas, I mean, we still face the same disconnect in the UK as in the US and Canada. You know, 98% of people aren't involved in agriculture. 
not everybody's dad or uncle or brother or sister is in agriculture. Mm -hmm. So we have that same big gap between the consumer and the farmer. And certainly from living in rural Montana for two and a half years, where it was a very kind of ag community all across the state, where I live now in, in Oxfordshire, it's still pretty rural, but there's still a big disconnect between the people growing the food and the people eating the food almost. Would you say that there's more of a, a mix of urban and agriculture? Increasingly so, yeah, because it's becoming more desirable. And bearing in mind that England's very different in terms of everything being a relatively short distance from anywhere else. So you can live in a very rural area, but still commute very easily to London or Manchester or Birmingham or wherever it might be. Um, whereas in Washington State, where I lived for two and a half years, for example, to get to Seattle, you had to drive for five hours. So <laughs> that kind of opportunity wasn't there quite so much. So we have probably more urban people living in rural areas than you guys might do over there. And I think here in Ontario, I think it's a little bit different than it is out in Western Canada. Yeah. We are very close to large urban centers. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we have much more of a mix here. When you get into Western Canada, I think it's much more wide open. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I mean, I once drove, when I was living in Bozeman, I drove up to uh, Moose Jaw. Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. Yes, exactly. So about a seven hour drive and there were whole tracks of that where you could see a gas station for two hours. You had no phone signal for 300 miles, you know, so on, so on. Over here, that, that just doesn't happen. I mean, particularly in England, you literally can't go 20 minutes without hitting a town or a city or a village or something. So there's so much land that, that, that isn't built up over with you guys in the same way that it is over here. Okay, so you are a livestock sustainability consultant. Mm -hmm. What exactly does that mean? That's a good question because that's what everybody asks. Like, oh, that's great. What do you do? <laughs> um, so funding-wise, as it were, what I'm paid to do is I do contract research. So my background, as I say, is in animal science. So I do research into, for example, product X in dairy cows, let's say, might improve milk yield per cow. What impact does that have on carbon footprint, land use, water use, so on and so on. So I do that both in dairy and beef and um, start starting to move into other species as well. Oh, so basically you're a paid shill. Absolutely. Apparently so. That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> or so I'm told. <laughs> yeah, so wow. I'm told. And then I also do quite a lot of talks and presentations talking to anybody and everybody from farmers groups through to government almost, you know, about, about these kind of topics and trying to myth bust some of the kind of everybody knows X, Y, Z. So you would be considered extension. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. But more independent extension versus extension at the University of X. But yeah, precisely that. And lots of changes in the dairy industry. How long have you been doing this? Uh, eight and a half years in total. Uh, two and a half years in New York State, uh, about three years in Washington State, and two and a half years in uh, Montana. And have you had time to start a family as well? Um, yep. I have a daughter who's four who will probably burst in at some point and <laughs> say something, but yeah. <laughs> and is she American or British? She was born in the U.S., so she's uh, she has the half and half um, citizenship. So. Oh. That's good. Mm -hmm. That might come in handy. Well, it might. I don't know. We'll see. 
it kind of depends what Trump does, doesn't it? As to, whether, <laughs> as to whether it's a good thing or a bad thing to have a U.S. passport, you know. You didn't leave the U.S. because Trump got elected. I didn't, but I would have been tempted to had I still been there when he had been. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> well, you would have been the only person that threatened to leave because Trump got elected and then actually did it. Ah, okay. Yeah, that's true. And actually thinking about it, we had quite a lot of famous people threatening, threatening to move if um, a Brexit happened, and they're all still here. So, you know, it was a bit of a, yeah. Certainly lots of people threatened to do things and then never actually follow through. Tell us why you went to the U.S. to do research. Yeah, absolutely. So I went over as a ruminant nutritionist. So I was analyzing fatty acids in milk and cheese and donkey milk as well, of all things. People milk donkeys? Well, not in the UK, but in Italy and Sicily, it's used as a, as a replacement for human milk for newborn infants um, because it's really similar in composition, like protein and fat and so on, to human milk. So it's easy to tolerate for like babies who are born too early or, or can't have cows type milk or can't have breast milk, you know. So yeah, there's, there's actually quite a big quite a big demand for it in some parts of Europe. I didn't know that. I know. Not many people do. You know? Well, it still has to definitely beat almond milk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so I went over doing that. And then my my boss, Professor Bauman, came to me, you know, about six months in or so and said, we should do this project looking at the environmental impact of recombinant bovine somatotropin or RBST, bovine growth hormone. And um, this was before really any of the ag industries were kind of talking about carbon footprint and climate change. So it was when the kind of carbon footprint people were in the green building over here and the animal science people were in this building over here and no one really talked to each other. And how long ago was this, Jude? 2006, that would have been, yeah. Okay. Um, so we did this paper and we looked at how effectively if we get an extra 10 pounds of milk per cow per day then we need fewer cows to make the same total quantity of milk so therefore less land less water less and so on so on and we were really lucky because it just hit at the time when the dairy industry was beginning to kind of think about this and it just yeah it just kind of took off from there so there was no grand plan to be doing this over 10 years later but it just it was just nice timing that that happened to be the time when everybody started started thinking about it. And everybody assumes that BST was developed to improve profitability. Yeah, absolutely. But there are other implications. Mm -hmm. One of those being that it improves efficiency and better for the environment. Effectively, yeah. If we produce more milk per cow per, get, per day, fewer cows, we see a roughly an 8% decrease in the carbon footprint per gallon of milk. Again, less land, less water, less fossil fuels, you know. But of course, that applies to any technology or anything that we do to get extra milk per cow. So breeding, feeding, housing, cow comfort, mastitis, whatever it might be. I mean, it, it isn't just RBST that would do that. And that's a good point. Just because we adopt a new technology that's better for profitability mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily mean that it's worse for animal welfare or it's worse for the environment. Oftentimes they work together. Absolutely. Yeah, precisely that. And I mean, it is, is, it, it is interesting. I was having this conversation with some chicken people the other day that um, so often System X or Technology X or whatever it might be can do really good things for land, water, fossil fuels, but then everyone goes, oh, but it's a whatever it might be, GMO, whatever it might be, we can't possibly do it. It's like, well, we've got to have those balances and those trade-offs kind of calculated somehow. And, and that bit gets really tricky. 
And here's a question, Jude, that I've been dying to ask. In your research on efficiency, did you look at breeds of cattle at all? Yes, we looked at Holsteins compared to Jerseys. So I can quote you as saying that Jerseys are more efficient than Holsteins. Oh, there we go, yes. <laughs> Jude Kappa says Jerseys are best. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the emphasis was not to show that either breed was better, although it was funded by the Jersey um, Jersey breeder guys, so you, you could understand that they might well, that's have a, unbiased, yeah. a uh, stake in the game, as it were. But we do know, and this has been shown, you know, hundreds of times, that milk yield per cow is a key driver of efficiency. So if we have a higher milk yield, again, less land, less water, so on and so on. But what no one had ever really looked at was, well, what about the composition of that milk? Is it high in fat, low in fat, high in protein, low in protein, so on and so on? In this instance, it was not about. Holstein versus Jersey per se. It was more about where, again, kind of like the the earlier point, where do all the trade-offs lie? If we have a cow that doesn't make quite as much milk, i.e. the Jersey, but the milk that she does make is higher fat and higher protein, therefore she has a higher cheese yield per gallon of milk. Uh And if she isn't as big a cow, so there isn't as much total cow mass to maintain how do all those things weigh against the higher milk yield for the Holstein and what we effectively found was that if we're looking at milk is milk is milk so we don't look at the composition of the milk there's really no difference between the two breeds so really it all comes down to total volume well no not necessarily because the because the milk yield increase for the Holstein is outweighed by the smaller body weight of the jersey so they come back kind of equal. But when we factor in the higher cheese yield or butter yield or ice cream yields from the Jersey milk, um, we actually saw a 20% decrease in the carbon footprint of milk being used to produce cheese with the Jerseys compared to the Holsteins. Oh, my God. So can I say Jerseys are better? Yes, effectively. If, <laughs> if you're making cheese. <laughs> only, only for cheese. So, Jude, issues around the environment and carbon footprint – and efficiency are fairly complex, but a lot of people out there want to make them black and white. Talk to us a little about the challenges that you've had in dealing with people when they take a polarizing point of view and and sort of start ignoring the scientific evidence. Oh, oh gosh. Well, there's so many places. Um, (laughs) On the environmental side, it becomes very one-sided. Carbon footprint becomes the only... Thing that they want to talk about mm-hmm. and they often cite work and data that's been produced years and years and years ago sometimes it isn't actually correct but it's still cited as this is fact and they don't make any allowances for the other advantages so for example cows produce methane every day they just do because they're cows you know absolutely right but if they're grazing on pasture they can also take in carbon from the air into that pasture. So you've got some kind of trade-off there. And then if you look at that particular pasture, now it could be good land or it could be kind of rocky soil on a hill that's full of stones, which you can't plough, where you can't grow soy, you can't grow grapes, you can't grow avocados. So if we don't put cattle or sheep or goats on that field, what can we do with that field? Right. Not everywhere in the world can support growing food for humans. No, absolutely. So People try to make it a very black and white, simple, you know, beef has a higher carbon footprint than soy, therefore it is bad kind of message. And as with all of these things, it's it's far more 
nuanced and there's far more shades of gray, particularly on things like Twitter, where you have to express yourself in 280 characters. It becomes A is good, B is bad, end of argument, because I say so. Right. And um, of course, belief is a really powerful thing, but belief doesn't actually mean truth. It just means belief. But we seem to be in a situation where people go, I believe A is better than B or X is bad. Therefore, it is. That isn't how it works. Right. People start with an opinion and then they find facts to sort of support that. Absolutely. And honestly, you can probably find a paper to fit any argument. I mean, you probably just can, you know, you want to argue that cats are actually fairly similar to penguins. There's probably a paper out there saying that they share 55% of their DNA or something like that, you know. So, yes, people will find something to support their argument, regardless of whether it's scientific, not scientific, a video from an anti-animal ag group or, you know, what it might be. It's just constant. And you've certainly had your run-ins with activist groups. I've been amazed at the levels that they'll go to to take shots at you, and they've made it particularly personal. Can you talk a little about that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I had breast cancer just before my 26th birthday. Touch wood, I'm healthy and fine and everything else, but I went through the chemotherapy and radiotherapy and hormones and drug, you know, for quite some years. So that's a real personal struggle to go through oh i mean i would absolutely not wish it on anybody in the world you know i just just absolutely wouldn't but i've been told that it's karma for me drinking milk eating meat you know so on so on and i just think where do these people how can they say such unpleasant things you know i mean all of us get angry in arguments and stuff but i wouldn't say that to my worst enemy no and again it amazes me what people will say from the safety of their keyboard that they wouldn't dare to say face-to-face. And you engage these people and you come off looking quite reasonable and tolerant. And oftentimes it demonstrates sort of how weak their arguments are and how outrageous they're being. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, on the one hand, I kind of just go, oh, you sad, silly little people. You know, just, just... Get on with it. Because, I mean, in a way, I'm quite proud of the fact that on Twitter they can't get me reported because I don't swear at people. I don't say horrible things. I don't use abusive words, you know, so on, so on. Which is not to say that you aren't sometimes snarky and funny. I mean, I can be sarcastic and stuff at times when I get really irritated, but I'm very careful not to actually be rude and nasty and call them a this and that or whatever it might be. Right, because there are people that might reach out to you and might actually have a a genuine answer that you have an opportunity to have a discussion around. Well, that's it. And and I mean, in the past, I have when it seems like a sensible question. And if somebody says, what happens to bull calves? I'll engage them. That's a sensible question. If they say something, and there was someone yesterday who said something like, can you justify how people can make a living out of manipulating the natural reproductive system for profit and gain? And obviously they were trying to kind of make some loaded comment about cows becoming pregnant and therefore making milk. But I said, well, 
If I was a healthcare professional who charged people for healthcare during pregnancy, I mean, that would be making money out of people's natural reproductive systems. And they said, that's avoiding the question. And I said, no, <laughs> it's just a really badly worded question. Right. It's not avoiding the question. You're not giving the answer that they're looking for in order to further their own narrative. Yes, exactly. And one of the things that I am always astounded by is when people try and make an argument that animals somehow can reason and mm -hmm. make logical choices and that we should be taking that into consideration in how we treat them. Absolutely. And I mean, I can't believe that any heifer, when she gives birth, goes, oh, that explains what I did 283 days ago. That's what that was all about. Now I get it. She's got no clue. There is no concept of in 283 days time, perhaps I'm going to have a little baby girl. And I mean, I guess from a touchy feely point of view, particularly when we have pets, then we do kind of extend emotions to them and thoughts to them and so on and so on. But I can't believe that those one in four people would feel the same about a plague of rats or when they had a bee's nest under their roof or they suddenly had some mice all over their house. Suddenly those animals would presumably not have the same rights as people, you know? No, we tend to pick and choose which animals we want to assign human emotions to. Yeah. And if I want to choose to pamper my cats and buy them presents at Christmas, it's not hurting the cats at all. The challenge becomes when people try and impose these values and belief systems on everybody else. Well, and I mean, also, I have absolutely no issue with anybody saying, I don't think that we should kill animals. That, that's absolutely, I'm never going to argue against that. That's their belief. That's their choice. I have no problem with that whatsoever. I have a problem with it all being dressed up with all this. Well, if only you didn't rape and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, well, if the issue is killing animals, just say, my issue is that I'm not okay with killing animals, then that's fine. We agree to disagree, end the conversation. Why dress it up with all this emotive, fear-mongering, nasty language that's simply designed to put other people off drinking milk or eating meat, you know? Why not just go, I've got my choices, you've got yours, let's all coexist quite happily, you know? And the thing to remember is that these people genuinely care. They honestly believe that what they're doing is right and they're going to mm -hmm. say some of these things because they're trying to do some good. Absolutely. And I mean, in, in person, in a, in a pub or on a bus, if you had some person who came up because you were eating a cheese sandwich and said, you rape and murder animals and you do this and that, you'd tell them to go away. And if they didn't, you would go away because that's what we would do, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But on Twitter and things, if you don't answer it, they're scared. They're avoiding the question. They won't respond. So, like, well, if you call me all of these names face to face, then I'd tell you to go away. You know, I would go away. So why in any other circumstance should I put up with it? You know, why is this okay? Just to keep ranting on and keep and calling people every name under the sun just because it's Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, or LinkedIn or whatever platform it might be. You know, it's really weird how we seem to think that's okay now. So you're active on social media and you came across something in January called Veganuary. I still can't say it properly. Yeah. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have to definitely say that properly because it always comes out sounding different in my mind. And this was something that the vegans were doing to try and convert people to their way of thinking. And to combat that, you came up with something called Febru Dairy. Tell us a little about how that started. Well, it, it was the middle of January and I was sitting at a genetics conference of all things. And the two people before me had kind of talked about the rise in the market for plant-based foods, you know, plant juices and so on and so on. And um, as a scientist, I know we need five pieces of positive information to negate one piece of negative information. That's on any topic. I mean, whether it's politics or food, farming or whatever it might be, because let's face it, bad news sells. Right. Nobody ever made headlines by saying everything is fine. Don't worry. Precisely. Yeah. Everything's happy. Carry on. Doesn't work for anybody, you know. So um, I sat there and thought, we just need a better image of the dairy industry. We just need more happy posts, more pictures of cows, pictures of carbs, pictures of cheese sandwiches, you know, things just to make people feel happier about the choices that they make. Not about saying you must drink milk, you should eat meat, you shouldn't be vegan, you know. And I mean, it was interesting that the Veganuary um, posters had, and I can't remember the terminology, but it was basically save Ernie and save Bob and save Eric or something. Right. Give the animals a personality. Absolutely. It was a, a like baby piglet and a like newborn calf and, and, and a very cute, fluffy yellow chick. You know, not a broiler at four weeks of age, not an 800 pound steer or something. It's like tiny little calf, you know? And this wasn't about, like, you should be eating meat and dairy. It was just about, look, here's my cheese sandwich. It's lovely. Look at these calves. Right. Positive messages. Yeah, absolutely. Celebrating dairy, precisely that. And it has it has been kind of hijacked and twisted a little bit into this is the desperate activity of a dying industry trying to claw back market. And I know. We just want to celebrate dairy. You know, we're quite happy. Right. It's different than the Veganuary campaign because it isn't trying to convert people away from being vegan, whereas in their minds, theirs is all about getting more converts. And so the concept that a vegan is not interested in more being people being vegan and so there being more vegan foods and vegan lifestyles and vegan clothes and whatever is beside the point, apparently. And um, I have had some interesting conversations with the people who are seem to be so kind of profit motivated. And I say, so if people didn't make a profit, then it'd be okay, would it? Well, no. And I'm like, so where's the, so how is the profit thing even relevant, you know? And I mean, I haven't ever been paid to tweet and I wish I would be paid to tweet because I'd tweet even more, but I'm not paid 10 pence per tweet or whatever it would be. It just doesn't happen, you yeah. know? <laughs> and so your February Dairy campaign picked up a fair bit of traction and that definitely got the attention of the vegan groups. They countered that yeah. pretty heavily and have really gotten quite aggressive in in how they're trying to stop your, your messaging. Yeah, absolutely. And yet with very little real common sense or logic or even understanding. I mean, it's the same arguments, the same emotive terms, the same total lack of any real. And I think somebody said to me last night, I think that's why they do these personal attacks because they don't have proper arguments. So it's easier just to say you suck and you're a bad person 
versus having an actual proper reasoned argument about the ethics of A versus B, you know. Um, it's kind of, dare I say, it, the Donald Trump way of arguing, you're a bad <laughs> person and I hate you, therefore you should listen to me. It's really kind of bully tactics, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And do you think that the February Dairy campaign made a difference? Did you come across any people who actually were open-minded and changed their minds? It is really difficult to tell, obviously, because in our Twitter worlds, we're all followed by our little Twitter friends, as it were, and we follow our little Twitter friends. And, you know, I can't imagine quite honestly that any of the traffic, either really positive or really negative, has reached the random person in the center of London who is a hairstylist and, you know, may or may not eat cheese. You know, but what it has certainly done, which I've thought has been really good, has been to have dairy farmers and others in the industry just posting pictures, posting clips, answering questions, going, this is why I'm proud of my cows, because this number 37 has just produced X amount of milk or had her 10th calf or whatever it might be. So even if nothing else, I think that's been really positive. And it's actually been really nice how much positive publicity we've got from quite a lot of the mainstream media in the kind of outlets where had we just put out a press release or something it probably wouldn't have ever got traction so the fact it has been quite a and i hate this term but quite a kind of grassroots <laughs> campaign seems to have yeah seems to work quite well you could build a whole series of cow puns there we go i like it <laughs> <laughs> and we don't have to limit this just to february dairy we could come up with dairy terms for every month. Well, absolutely. Is it meaty and milky March? Mozzarella March? You know, there are opportunities for every month of the year. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not get carried away here. Oh, yeah, I know. That's the danger, isn't it? You know. But I think it is great that dairy farmers and the dairy industry is proud of what we do, and we should keep that up. Absolutely. Well, Jude, thanks for February Dairy and everything you do on social media. And thanks for taking some time and chatting with me today. My pleasure. This has been the Ontario AgCast. The Ontario AgCast is proud to be part of the Farm and Rural Ag Network. For all the best agricultural podcasts and agriculture video blogs, be sure to check out farmruralag.com. If this is the last podcast we ever do, it's been fun. If not, we'll see you next time.